Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is George. No, just kidding. Uh, my name is Jerry. You guys, you guys know me. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Galatians 3, 27 to 29. It's on page 1003 in the Bibles in the back of the pews. If you want to follow along there. Starting at verse 27. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. It's always good when the word of God gets some claps. Or were you just, were you clapping for George there? Okay. The Bible knows nothing of the idea of an unchurched Christian. It knows nothing of the idea of an unchurched Christian. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said that he will build his church. He will build his church. And Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy, chapter 3. He said to Timothy, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I've written you these things so that people know how they ought to behave within the the, 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 the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Jesus is building his kingdom through his church. And the Bible knows nothing of the idea of an unchurched Christian. Instead, they know of the household of God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. There's a quote from a uh, commentator or a, a preacher, John Stott, who said, conceived in a past eternity, And being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity, God's work is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. We are called to a life together. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means the gathering of those summoned. The ecclesia is the gathering of those summoned or the gathering of the called out ones. It's life together. You aren't a football player if you are not on a team of other football players. You're not a solo soldier without an army. But as you know, there's a problem. People don't really like to get together, at least not very well. And when we do, we don't play very well together. We especially don't naturally connect with people who are different than us. We are more comfortable with those who are like us than those who are different. And so the gospel is bringing us together, all kind, and it's bringing together all kinds of people who aren't naturally drawn to one another or by every natural measure are actually opposed to one another, how is this thing that God is building gonna work out? And Paul is dealing with that question 
in a sense, in the book of Galatians. Galatians was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, a province of what is modern-day Turkey. And the question of the day was really, what is required to belong to the church? Or what does it mean to be in God? Or pleasing to God? Or righteous before God? Number of Gentile, non-Jewish believers was growing as the gospel had spread out to new places and was reaching new people. And a group of Jewish teachers had come along. They were called the Judaizers who said that in order to be saved, one must obey the Mosaic law and customs and most specifically for salvation, the ritual of circumcision. And they had to do that first. That first in order that they might then come to Christ and receive all that he offers. Convert to Judaism first, then you can become a Christian. But all paths lead through Judaism. But the gospel that Paul was preaching was a gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. And many Gentiles were coming to the faith. And so there was a problem and this group of Judaizers arrive and they say, not so fast, There's something else for y'all to do before you can believe. It would seem by the introduction of this book that some of the folks in Galatia believed the Judaizers and began to yield the gospel of faith alone and Christ alone to this gospel that they were preaching, so to speak. And so Paul writes this letter to argue that they've gotten it all wrong. That's the letter of Galatians. You got it all wrong if you go down that path. Right out the gate, after the the standard introduction in the book of Galatia and, and, and the greeting, Paul immediately turns to the issue at hand. In a typical letter that Paul would write, oftentimes you had this introduction, here's who I am, Apostle Paul, called by the Lord, so and so, and then your standard greeting, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then a paragraph of like fuzzy, warm, lovey-dovey encouragement for how much he loved them and he was so like on board and affectionate toward them or maybe some sort of kind of theologically rich doxology about who God is and how amazing he is. This one, Paul goes, my name's Paul. Howdy. Let's get down to business. Let's skip the fuzzy warms. Let's skip the doxology. Let's get right to it. And in fact, in in chapter one, he goes right to this. This is so important. It's too important to wait through all the standard niceties. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. You're turning away. You're turning away to a gospel which is no gospel at all. You are turning away from grace to human effort. Curse the person who preaches a so-called gospel of works, the one who distorts the gospel of Christ. The gospel is all about what was done for us. 
not what we do. And since it is not by our efforts, but by his grace, that puts us all on equal footing. Outside of Christ, we are unable to do anything to secure our salvation. In Christ, it has all been done for all of us. Oh, but I come to Christ with great riches and wealth. Surely I have a leg up on the poor person. Oh, but I come to Christ with great wisdom and knowledge. I'm way smarter than those dumb folk on the other side of the aisle. But, but I come to Christ with a life of good works. That person has been a problem since they were a teenager. I come as a man. Surely that gets me somewhere ahead of the women. No. The gospel comes and says we all come with the same level of need. We all come. And we are all welcomed in the same way through faith. Believing is belonging. Verse 27 says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Baptism, as we think of it, is that symbolic reenactment of what is actually a spiritual reality that we go through when we are born again in Christ. And here, Paul is referring to the reality of what the act that we observe in the baptismal symbolizes. He's talking about the reality behind it. Since you have died to the flesh and sin and have been raised to life in Christ, you are now clothed with Christ. Once you could only relate to Christ from afar. The only way you and I could relate when we were outside of Christ was through worldly understanding or knowledge. I don't know what I think about that Christ guy. I don't know. I got to think about his teaching and see how his teaching measures up to other teaching. And, and I got to weigh it in a worldly way. I got to reason this out. I got to use all my reasoning faculties to figure out whether I believe Christ or I believe this guy. That's the only way we could relate to Christ. But the work of the gospel has fundamentally changed the way you and I relate to the triune God. And it is now through our union with Christ, who is the second person in the Trinity, that we are now like a piece of clothing wrapped around our body. We are drawn in to experience union with God through Christ. But you are not the only one. Back to our original points. You are not the only one. Anyone who has been baptized into Christ is there with Christ as well together. We are one together in Christ. Which leads us to verse 28 and 29. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus and you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to his promise. Paul lays out in verse 28 some natural points of division. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. The phrase, there is no Jew nor Greek, addresses the racial, the cultural divides of the time. Jews and Greeks or Gentiles were often in conflict with deep-seated prejudice and religious differences. It was really hard for them to hang with each other. It was so different. 
Paul asserts here that in Christ, these racial and ethnic distinctions are irrelevant. Irrelevant. Believers are united in a new identity that transcends, transcends these divisions. Did you know that we are still divided over race and, race and cultural expression as a, uh, in the church, the household of God? And that, that may surprise you depending upon where you're at or what you see, but there are stories out there. Me and Mike were just at a conference hearing plenty of them. In 1912, a group of leaders at the Anderson family camp or the Anderson camp meeting asked all the black folk to please not come anymore because their presence was keeping white people from hearing the gospel and coming to the Lord. Put out, eventually a camp was formed, I think it was, it was a Middlesex formed in 1917, where they could then go and go to camp with all, whoever wanted to come and worship, but it wasn't Anderson camp. We have heard a story of a black female pastor in the district who will not go to Diamond Arrow because it was at Diamond Arrow that she was first called the N-word. She's still alive, so this is in her lifetime. You, I don't want to air all of our dirty laundry. You might be like, where's the door? Let's get out of here. But <laughs> would you be surprised that if there was a district within our movement that refuses to credential black pastors? Refuses today. Refuses. It's not... Over there, it's not out there, it's not back there. Oh, that's 1950s stuff. It is 1950s stuff, but it's also today. We still see divisions within God's household over things like race, differences in ethnicity to this day. I won't go into detail, but hearing first-hand stories of feeling like, I don't belong. I'm with the wrong people here. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Breaks your heart, knowing that's not something, and that's not a delusion. That's not something fabricated in a mind. There's, there's evidence that speaks, not necessarily one-to-one. -one. I, I would hope that none of, none of us have ever said that directly, some of those words that I repeated, but it's possible. The gospel is that great equalizer because we can all come from different places. We can even come from racist background. The gospel can change us by bringing us into a family of lots of different folks and change our hearts so that we can see differently the people who are around us. Not primarily by those things that divide, but by the, the one thing that unites in Christ. Verse 28 continues with the statement that there's no slave or free. And this speaks directly to a social and economic division that was really prevalent in the Roman Empire. There was a significant gap between the slave and the free people. And Paul's message is radical in this context. In the Christian community, that will not be. That distinction will 
not be. These social hierarchies are destroyed. Both slave and free are equal in dignity and worth in the eyes of Christ and in his household. James chapter two, giving exhortation to us, the church said, brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, oh sit here, here's a good place, or, or maybe you could sit at my feet, the place of, of honor. And to the poor person, you say, hey, behind the curtain, or in the back, or in the corner, it's all practical reasons. You smell, you're unsightly, you're scaring people. Haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. By saying, there is no male and female. What is Paul saying? <clears throat> is he agreeing with our modern social movement to erase all gender distinctions? He can't be doing that. For God created it in goodness. Paul is addressing a culture where women were often considered inferior to men and so this statement that in Christ there is no male or female would have been a revolutionary statement. The Jewish man gave thanks to God in a liturgy that went like this. The Jewish man of the first century gave thanks to God in a liturgy every morning. If he was the head of the household, he would get up and he would say, at least in part, this liturgy. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman or a slave. Thank you, God. And Paul is pointing out that in Christ, all the old dividing lines and walls that were accepted and even extolled in Judaism had been broken down in Christ. This is part of the good news of the gospel. It implies equal value and equal access to God's promises and blessings for both men and women. The concluding part of verse 28 says, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's key to understanding the verses. Why is there no Jew or Greek? Why is there no slave or free? Why is there no male or female in Christ because we are all one in Christ. And that's, the beauty is in the all one word. It's this Greek word that means one entity or one person. We are all, plural, we are all one person in Christ. And elsewhere in the scripture, it talks about the parts of the body, right? You don't say to the parts of the body, I don't need you, I'll cut you off. Ah, uh, you're inferior to me. You're not a part that's noble, so I don't need you. I'll leave you behind. We don't cut off parts of our body, do we? Well, we're one person in Christ. One person in Christ. And so where do these divisions come from? If we wouldn't do it in our own body, why do we do it in God's, in his household? You are one person in Christ. All believers share the same status regardless of their racial, social, 
or gender because they are one new person in Christ. If there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female in Christ, what is there then? What are we now? Well, verse 26 actually tells us right before. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. No longer distinction, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. No, we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus was the son of God. We are all sons of God. This passage is all about status. It's all about the status of every believer, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, and female, that they have in Christ, and that is sonship. We all have sonship. Now, you might immediately go, wait, that sounds gendered. It's not like we're talking about men again. It was a legal status, a legal status that conferred the benefits on anyone with that designation. What benefits? Sonship in Christ is an equal heir to his kingdom and promises. The status of sonship entitles us to full participation in Christ Jesus. It entitles us to justification by faith in Christ and union with God through Christ and through the Spirit as is talked about in chapter four of Galatians. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. We sang that earlier. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, male, female. The female didn't have the hope of being a son to receive the, heir, the, the, the inheritance of her father, her earthly father. But in Christ, she is as a son, full inheritance, full participation in Christ, no mediator needed, justified, sanctified, and unified with God through Christ in the spirit. Some think that or sometimes I think we, we think that we are complete, we're simply called to, to kind of give mental assent to the components of the gospel. We, we think uh, that mental assent, yes, I agree with that, I, I hear that, I hear that, I hear that, that's believing or that's faith. But that is so wrong. The church is called not merely to believe the gospel, but also to become the gospel and thereby advance the gospel. The church is a living explanation of the gospel. People don't want to hear what you believe. People don't want to hear, yes, in Christ, we're all one. We're one big happy family. I'm so glad I'm a part of heaven. Right? Show me. Exegete it. Let, let the church be the living example of what that even looks like. And we go, oh, I'm so part. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that song was sung at Anderson Camp with all those folks who were uninvited, not present. I'm so glad I'm a part. That was, probably came later, but <laughs> that's Gaithers, right? 
They had their own. Oh, I believe because I evaluated each component and I said, yes, 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 no. That's not belief. Belief is loyal love and faithfulness. Belief is trusting in something so as to put the full weight of your life on it as if you were leaning on something sturdy. And so if you say, I put my full weight on the gospel, then the gospel has broken down divisions that many people in our society and culture want to hold on to. And many people in the church don't look much different. But if you really do believe the gospel, and the gospel has the answers for the questions that the people in this world are asking, then we have to lean fully our weight on it and believe it not just here, but live it out here. There can be no division among us. There can be no division, ethnic, ethnic or racial division, financial or status or economic division. There can be no gender division among us that one is prime or has primacy over the other or one is necessary for access to God. No. We have to live and embody the gospel in the way that we live out this one community that we are in Christ. The gospel is the great equalizer and we are called out to participate in what God is doing by becoming the gospel embodied. It's not easy. How many of you guys have had to have a hard, difficult conversation with a brother or sister in order to maintain unity and, and uh, peace? How many of you guys have had a difficult conversation? Yep. It's not easy. You don't even wanna do it. But the alternative is to pack your stuff and run and go somewhere else, Right? And to live a life hopping from one place to the other in division, without living. It's, it's not easy. They had lots of questions to handle. Paul had to figure out how he was gonna interact with Peter when Peter seemed to be backsliding and associating only with the Jewish believers in the presence of the Gentiles and making them feel inferior. And so Paul had to say, what am I gonna do here? I could say nothing, that's Peter. That's the rock, Paul said, no, this is too important. I'm gonna step out, I'm gonna call out Peter and say, no, we don't divide over that. Not in God's household. And we won't tolerate it. You know, I, I, I just, I don't remember where I was sharing it recently, but you know, cult, culture is built, maybe I shared it this last week, culture is built by what we celebrate and, and uh, what we communicate and what we emulate. And the final one is what we tolerate. So what's the culture in the house of God? Well, it should be biblically informed. It should be based on the word. But just know that whatever we're tolerating in the house of God is becoming part of our culture, who we are and how we relate to one another. And when you tolerate division on those bases, you're, you're fracturing God's household. You're weakening the witness that it has in this world. We are not to divide nor are we to treat anyone as less or unimportant. We have been clothed, remember this part in the scripture, we have been clothed with Christ. But it's when we start slapping bumper stickers and patches on that clothing to shout out all of our other allegiances that we start to introduce all kinds of problems into the body of Christ. Republican, Democrat, for this, against that, we 
We start slapping on all kinds of patches onto the clothing that Christ has provided, and pretty soon, we're divided over things. Yes, he didn't include political affiliation in his list, but I guarantee he would. It should not divide us. We are one person in Christ. Our society is looking for the answer to the question, how can we live together? And no institution is more equipped to answer that question than the church of Jesus, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We are called to participate in what God is doing by becoming the gospel, embodied for the world to see. No matter the dividing lines, we are to set them aside. All humanity is in the same sinking ship and in need of a savior. And no one is more deserving of it than anyone else. Some may wonder why other voices seem to dominate the conversation and discourse over diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think it's likely, as I've heard other pastors say, it's likely because the church has given up its position and yielded its authority to speak the truth on these issues. And when we don't speak the truth about what this world is and what it's like in Christ, we yield the field to other people to try to figure out how do we make this work. And I think what we need are bold people of faith who can go out and say, hey, we're all in the same boat here, but in Christ, we find a household of faith, a place that we can be drawn into and changed by his grace and his love at work in our hearts. And we can find a way to live together under his banner and his love. It's likely that we've given up space and so others speak their truth on the issue. People often argue that religion has been the cause of many wars and divisions in the past. And so how dare you Christians think that you have the answer? What about this and what about that in the past? And if you're measuring your behavior against your neighbors to determine who is better, then that's a legitimate argument. Because there are times where other organizations or people have acted better than the church. But if there is an immovable standard of perfection that is Christ Jesus and you were so bad that someone had to die to save you, well, there's no room for you to judge or sneer at your neighbor. No room. Yeah, you, we can, you wanna, you wanna parse uh, over whether or not you are a better person or you do gooder works than me? That's one way to do it, but we could do that all day and still die on the sinking ship. There's only one way, and that's to abandon that way and instead to look to the one who died for us to save us because we were that bad that we needed someone to die and save us. And if we're that bad and you're that bad and everyone is that bad, then we're all the same. You're no better than they are, and they are no better than you. And if you were so unbelievably loved by someone who was willing to die to save you, there's an immense freedom to move forward in confidence and grab hold of all the other unworthy ones along the way.
in Christ, all may be one. 